Today's Galato, we have Milan Juve, Italy Portugal, Ventura's latest Misaventura, driving tanks over cars, and Outlook Claudio. As Ranieri returns, we discuss his Italian great escape. There's been some big breaking news as we made our way in to do this Galato. I say we. I'm talking about James Horncastle. Hello, James. And Gabriele Marcotti. And Claudio Ranieri's just been appointed at Fulham. So, clear the decks. Let's bust out some Ranieri chat, first of all, before we even begin to think of addressing any of the other topics this week. Not least because, James, we quite literally got the man who wrote the book on Ranieri with us. We do. It's not me. It's Gabriele. Gabriele, you wrote the book on Claudio Ranieri, the book being Hail Claudio, the man, refresh my memory, the man, the myth, no, the, the man, the, what was it called <laughs> the again? The man, the miracle. The man, the miracle. I wrote a book together with uh, my colleague Alberto Polverosi from Corriere dello Sport, um, recapping Claudio's career. Yes, yeah. that is correct. I think the most, the most significant immediate impact is when Jose Mourinho reminds us uh, he's going to have to sort of uh, adjust his little slogan about the fact that he's won more Premier League titles than the rest of the Premier League managers combined. Now he has to say he's won as many as the rest of the Premier League managers combined. Well, because Mourinho's these days a big fan of Ranieri. You remember when he attended the press conference with mm. the, the CR on his on his sweat top in kind of a solidarity. Presumably he's getting SJ yeah. embroidered there now. The guy he in the past called, what, an old man who Win couldn't nothing, speak English? Couldn't speak English. Yeah. But I think what's, what's really weird about Ranieri, and here I'm going to delve slightly into Italian culture. And James, I know you lived in Rome... And other James, I know you've spent time in, in, in Rome and mm-hmm. go there quite frequently now, as I understand it, right? That is true, yeah. In fact, you were just there. there. three years, yeah. So, Claudio Ranieri, despite being from Rome, from like the most Roman part of Rome, El Testaccio, people from outside of Rome in Italy have a certain image of what Romans are like. He's probably the least Roman, Roman who I've ever met because you have certain certain stereotypes about, you know, it's not just the, in the way they speak. People from, from Rome tend to be sort of rather loud, loud and verbose. They, they have, have a like, donkey like Io, Roma, Roma, Sino. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they, they've got, they have like 20 expressions that they use over and over. The regionalism. <laughs> I'm not, no, no. You but, slammed everybody south of Naples. <laughs> It's got nothing to do with that. Sweeping north. South of got, no, in fact, in fact, this is one of the things I found fascinating. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I've told them this. I uh-huh. said, like, I know where you're from, but you don't sound Roman and you don't act. And what did he say? And he's like, oh. <laughs> oh, 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 I only want to this. No, no, actually, he made the point that it's kind of, in, I'm going to delve into more regionalism, right? Ranieri played for Catanzaro, which is in Calabria, which is sort of in, in the way deep south in the toe of the Italian boot. And for a long time, and that's where he met, that's where he met his wife, and it's where he still has a house. And in Calabria, one of the things they're known for is a certain, a certain formality uh, that exists when they speak to each other, both people on the street, but also people you don't know. There's a certain obsequiousness, uh, a certain sort of respect for titles and whatever. And I think that's been much more of an influence on him than the fact that he's from Rome. Although, memorably, and even if you don't speak Italian, it's worth looking at this on YouTube. When he was manager of, of Roma, <laughs> it all came back. Like, this sort of concentrate of, of being Roman. I think it was, was it after the, the, the defeat in the derby? And yeah, yeah. 
he just went and he went he went on an absolute rant in Roman dialect. But it's literally, I think, the only time many people have heard him speak that way. Io sono allegro. Io sono allegro. E state dando ancora più soddisfazione a tutti i romanisti. Ma come no? Ma come no? Ma come no? Li state a far godere. Come Ricci stanno a godere. Roma, which was always the club that he was... It felt that was where he was destined to go, and it took him decades to finally end up there. And when he did, it was that memorable season when they very nearly derailed. I think there was a half of football when they were at the, on the final day of the season. They were going to, they were going to stop Mourinho from winning the treble at Inter. Well, I mean, just prior to that, hadn't there? There was the the game against Sampdoria when they were they were ahead of Inter uh, in the table, the two points ahead, and uh, and they lost that game. I remember what Philippe Maxes in the dugout crying, and that was the. He took to Daniele De Rossi. That's the one of the biggest kind of regrets of his career. They really were. Close after a terrible start to the season, in which Spalletti Spalletti resigned and went. He came in. Um, yeah, and they went, lost their first two games that season, and then and then Ranieri took over. And Inter's lead over them, and this is Jose Mourinho's Inter that would go on to win the treble, mm. um, that had won the league the previous like year tw- by a million like points. Twelve points ahead of them at one stage. They were, I think, they were actually fourteen points ahead, okay. or, or, or maybe it was thirteen. Maybe. Double he, digits. He had an enormous lead, right? And he frittered it all away, and it was week after week, and it was sort of peak bad Mourinho. I know it's hard to imagine. Actually, it's not hard to imagine. But you know when he'd get nervous, and then he'd attack everybody, and he'd talk about respect, and how he had won the Champions League. Obviously, he only had the one Champions League that week. And all the while, there was this incredible turnaround where Rome, as a city, right, where normally they're the ones who get jumpy and, and nervous and weird... They were just kind of quietly and efficiently just sort of winning game after game after game after game. And and Agnelli was getting all this credit as the man who was keeping the lid on, the man who was keeping everybody calm, and Inter were bottling the title. Until, of course, <laughs> the bottom fell out and it was Roma who bottled it. He's a man whose career has had possibly its biggest highs and lows outside of Italy. Lows with Greece, highs with, well, Leicester. One after the other in that case. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at him coming in at Fulham now, taking over at mid-season, maybe, maybe the parallel that's most apposite is when he arrived at Parma, 23 games into the season there. I'm not sure if they were absolutely bottom, but they, they seemed destined for relegation, right down in the relegation zone. And he worked a remarkable job in turning them around and racing them up the table to finish 12th. Yeah, that was his, that was his comeback, wasn't it, to, to Italy, believing that sort of January transfer window they signed a young uh, Giuseppe Rossi uh, and Rossi helped keep them up. Prior to this, obviously, he was he was sacked by Chelsea in 2004. Mm. He went back to Valencia where, where he'd enjoyed tremendous success, but they were just terrible. And he was reduced to working at now disappeared satellite TV channels like Bravo on Italian football. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. And, he, and, and what he did when he came back, with hindsight, knowing what I know about him, I simply don't believe the story as it is, but it's a good story that he says, Parma, we're like, okay, yeah, you can come and coach us, but it's going to be tough. We don't have any money to pay you and blah, blah, blah. And he said like, oh, no problem. I'll just sign a blank contract and then you pay me what you think my job was worth. And then the joke goes that, you know, in the end of the season, Parma put a tiny number on there and he says, well, I, you know, 
knew you didn't have some money. I didn't realize it was going to be so cheap. Ha ha ha. And it's, you know, the joke's not even funny when Agnani tells it, to be honest. But I don't believe that story, but it fits with the narrative of kind of the guy who's so down and out mm. that, you know, but also gig such a gentleman. Type. And it certainly fits with the gentleman side of things mm. too. I mean, the thing. I mean, you spent a lot of time with him mm. making the book. My kind of experiences of him like around that period, he was he was he was always a very uh, willing interviewee. Yeah, and worked. Bonkilla, very he's quite a sweet guy. Yeah, lovely bloke. And everybody knows the story of the chocolate biscuits. I'm, I'm sure when he arranged for a, a special box of chocolate biscuits for me from. Do you, do you know that uh, Ribo, the the restaurant near San Siro? I'm not sure if it's even there anymore. Do you remember that restaurant? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, they. they fantastic after dinner kind of like they bring you a selection of chocolate biscuits after after you dine there and uh, I enjoyed them very much and when we left it turned out he motioned the cameriere over and said can you get another little bag and he gave me this bag of biscuits that he got just for me yeah he's he knows how to be nice to to the right people big media players but but I think it's I think it's also fairly genuine with them mm. um, you know I think he's very clear about where he started out also as a manager you know he literally started out at the very lowest tier and he worked his way up that stint he had at Cagliari is insane now where he he takes them up from the third division consecutive promotions into the top flight he's the guy who gets Fiorentina back into City after Mm. they get relegated couldn't work the same magic at Juve but when you look at his career you you say he didn't work the same magic Mm -hmm. at Juve again people forget this he took over a Juve side who were Newly promoted to Serie A, obviously after Calciopoli, they won the league with with Didier Deschamps, and this is still a team that's just promoted. I mean, mm-hmm. they they had they hung on to some stars when they were relegated. They've they, been hollowed out, really, haven't they? But I mean, yeah, they had been they had been hollowed out. You know, this is still the Juve like of the the, the Delle Alpi. This is the Juve spending tons on Felipe Melo. It was so important, I think, for Juve and the Juve brand that when they come back up, they made a statement straight away, and they did. I, I think they, they were second for much of the year, yeah. and then they ended up slipping to third, I think, on the last day of the yeah. season or around that. Juve's reputation at the time was still very much in, in tatters, right? It's hard to overstate how polarized Italian football was back then, certainly more so than now. And the people who were running Juve then which was Andrea Agnelli's cousins, mm. the Alcans, and this guy named... Ecobolli-Gigli. Ecobolli-Gigli. These were sort of, you know, the blue bloods, sort of, we are the good face, we're going to come in. You know, people remember post-Calciopoli, Juve got to the point where they, they were so concerned about their image and so horrified at what happened. And again, if Andrea Agnelli were here, he'd dispute all this because he would say it was all an exaggeration, a lie, and everybody was, was at it. Well, these guys rolled over, didn't they? Which I think is what Andrea that, He would say that they rolled over. But to the point that, you know, Juve offered Franco Baldini a job, you know, who was sort of their great accuser, mm. to try and cleanse themselves. And the next best way to cleanse yourself in 2007 is what? Is you bring in a guy who... Is a gentleman in, in in every sense of the world mm-hmm. word in the way he in the way he behaves he fit that that vision the fact that he had no ties to Juve was also I think an important signal and he undoubtedly got the job done in the first season year two that's when he started having some serious difficulties well, that's I think. because they they had a different idea of, of how they where they wanted to take the team. I'm talking about the recruitment side. They brought in Diego. Remember Diego? Yeah. They signed from was it Werder Bremen for a hell of a lot of money at the time. I wanted to play. Well, Alessio Seca was the sporting director. Yeah, yeah. play him as a ten, 
and Claudio was like, ah, this team plays 4-4-2. You know, and all of a sudden, I think they became very short-handed when it came to be playing with wingers in a four-four-two, and they, they couldn't change. He didn't want to change, and it ended up being a a royal mess. Mm. Chilo Fidala came in, didn't he? What do you think of his prospects at Fulham? Fulham were the third biggest spending team in all of Europe in terms of net spend last summer. Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the third, and this is a team that, you know, had a tremendous season last year in the championship. It's almost like a Panini sticker team. You know, mm. let's go and let's buy all these guys. Some of these guys, I think, are really good and could easily be playing for, for, for top six teams. Um, Said he goes from, for example, being linked with Barcelona and all the other big clubs in Europe to signing for Fulham a year later. Yeah, I mean... Anguissa is another one who, you know, is up there. Uh, Shorla, of course, is a world champion. Vieto was a guy who struggled at Atletico Madrid, but was a serious, serious footballer before that. It'll be interesting to watch. They have an enormous squad. There's a ton of chopping and changing until now. I think one of his real strengths is insulating players from, from pressure. And I think we saw that. Notorious ultras at Craven Cottage. Yeah. <laughs> Not where, so much where, the... Where. <laughs> Where the away fans sing, you only drink white wine. I mean, <laughs> not so much the con- no, but you know, making them feel good about themselves and having them only focus what's on the pitch. I mean, that was a key element, obviously, of Leicester's run to the title. Another one was making the defence so rock solid, which is a bit of an issue at Fulham. They certainly have a lot of quantity of defenders at <laughs> Fulham. Um, they will play four four two to begin with. He'll teach them the ABCs of football. And they'll build from there. That's that's what Claudio always always it's does. It's a tall order. I I think too, more than most, because he's not wedded to one system and one style of play. I think he he's just going to go and basically make the system fit whatever players he likes most and are fittest at that time. And he's going to find a way to get this tactical message across to them in a simple way. And. I didn't say this about, because people were tweeting like, oh, but, you know, other than Leicester, in the last 10 years, it's not like he covered himself in glory. And, you know, I, this is nonsense. Wikipedia, you know. Finishing second in Serie A to a team that won the treble with Roma, that is covering yourself in glory. Mm-hmm. When he went to Monaco, they spent a ton of money, but, you know, you still had to win the title, and he did. He won the second division title, and then they went up, and... They finished second to the biggest spending team in the history of French football and to, to Paris Saint-Germain. These are good results. Now, did he also have bad ones? Yeah. But, you know, equally, the car crash that was his experience with Greece, that's national team football. That's a totally different kettle of fish. It, you can't really blame him for what happened at Inter as well because look at the number of managers that yeah. they've been going through. That team was at an end of a cycle. Malati was completely lost interest and was trying to flog the club. And, and and again, Parma, I think, you know, in this country, people talk about the great escapes, the West Brom, all Fulham under yeah. Uncle Roy, all those things. But, but in Italy... Or under Pearson. Very true. Uh, but uh, in Italy, that job, that second half of the season that he did at, at Parma is regarded as one of the all-time great rescue yeah. jobs. And, and that was a Parma side that didn't have a lot of the, the, the players that we associate Parma having in mm. the sort of 90s. You know, I think the only, only remnant of that was Fernando Cotto, and that, and that was about it. Um, so it was a, a real kind of odds and sods kind of Palmer side. Well, his job at Fulham begins in almost a fortnight with a home clash against Southampton, so that could be auspicious. And guess who they're playing after that? Why, is it Chelsea? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 
And、you also, I think, will have,、mm-hmm. and I stand to be corrected, but probably the shortest commute of any manager、yeah. in the Premier League. Does he live at the cottage? Like 10 minute walk.、Mm-hmm. Right. With that. Best of luck.、Uh, Bocca lupo. Crepe. To Claudio Ranieri. Culo la balena. Speriamo che non scorreggi. There you go. Campionato di calcio italiano. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. First of all, we have to talk about your latest Italian jaunt, James, when you, you went over to San Siro to see、uh, Milan Juve. Yeah, I was in、uh, Bergamo earlier that day for.、Mm. Uh, the... See the Nerazzurri win again? <laughs> yes, but not the Nerazzurri that in one day. It's,、yeah. a, it's like foreshadowing Qatar 2020 to 2022. <laughs> yeah. And the magic of being able to watch two games in one day. All right, so、yeah. Inter, who had won seven straight games,、mm-hmm. and held Barcelona to a draw, went two.、Mm-hmm. The Atleti Azzurri d'Italia.、Mm-hmm. And, and, and what happened then?、Ah, they got absolutely blown away、uh, in blustery conditions, I must say. It was damp and windy.、Mm. Um, but I would say it's probably the worst place to go after you've played Barcelona in the Champions League,、uh, where you've been running around chasing shadows for most of the game, to go and play as physical and intense a side as Atalanta in Bergamo. I think, in some respects, you could see this coming. Also, because this game is also very personal. It's always personal for Gasperini, given what happened to him at Inter. When he's such a badass, hardcore character, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> But、um, from minute one, Atalanta were magnificent in this game. It was slightly reminiscent this season of when. Do you remember when they went to Roma and Pastore got Roma in front with that crazy back heel? And then Atalanta, for about 50 minutes, just. Completely took them to pieces. But in this in this game, Inter just couldn't come back. They obviously got a penalty to get level just after、mm. half time. But that, at the end of the first half, James, Atlanta could have been 3 4 0 up. Ilicic could have had a hat trick. They were, yeah, they were、yeah. brilliant. It was one of those Handanovic games.、Mm. He's, he's certainly bounced back in terms of his form. How about Papa Gomez's fourth goal for La Dea? Yeah, wonderful. I mean, what pushes it inside? Visalico or just,、uh, just come on and finds the top corner? Um, I mean, that's the thing about that side. I mean, they are, as I said, tough, but they've got the two guys behind Zapata, Ilicic and Papu, that when they do win the ball back high, they've got these guys who've got the skill to find the final pass or to score from distance. And yeah, they look like they're, they're on a run. And I would say they're probably the big winners of the weekend. Along with, with Juve. So Juve beat Milan, and that was the game you saw later on at San、mm-hmm. Siro. Yeah. I mean, it was no contest.、Mm. Um, Although, equally there, Milan could have been back into it when Higuain <laughs> had the penalty. Yeah. In some respects, it was quite interesting after the game because Chesney in the mixed zone was saying that, you know, as, as the guy who was Buffon's stand in goalkeeper last, last year, he was the guy that Higuain practiced penalties against、um, and kind of. Hope that he would go the same way that he always goes, dive a little bit early in order to get there and manage to just about get something on it to push it on the post. And、mm-hmm. yeah, he's shown himself to be a very good penalty saver for Juve over the last 18 months or so. But for Higuain, after that, you could see his head was gone. And I must say, Benatia, who'd given the penalty away and only moments before that had been booked for a kind of rash challenge on Bakayoko. Should arguably have been sent off, but Benatia from, from that moment forth, I thought he was incredible.、Uh, I mean, you look at all the pagelle in the, in the papers afterwards, and they all gave him four or five. I thought he absolutely monstered、yeah. Higuain throughout that game. We should also point out why Benatia was playing.、Yeah. 
instead of uh, Leo Bonucci. Mm. Whose decision was that? That was Massimiliano Allegri's decision and, and Bonucci made it very clear before the game. He was like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a coward. No, it's it's that guy. Honestly, I was very surprised to find out yesterday. Yeah, because the rumour pre-game was that he had requested not but, to play. Bonucci, who had gone to Milan amid much fanfare mm. and then returned basically to Juve after not a very successful season at all, not in the starting lineup when Juve went to... And, and that, that was quite amusing because the, the announcer was reading out the, the team sheet and Juventus' team was already being whistled and then it got to the substitutes and he was, what, the fourth name on the substitute and all of a sudden it just goes, oh, <laughs> Merda! <laughs> His name came out. And midway through the game, there was this banner mm. um, that appeared which said, uh, yeah, Bonucci is worse than Schettino. Worst um, captain since... The guy who basically abandoned yeah. ship when the Costa Concordia went down off the island of Giglio. Yeah. Mm. I think also people talk about the differences in Italian football and Allegri, who I think in some ways is the uber Italian, uber modern Italian manager. Mm. I just love the fact that he was just so blunt in explaining why he didn't he didn't play Bonucci, and he's like rotation. He's like, <laughs> well, he's like, he's like, well, otherwise, like you know, when is Benatti going to play? He's got to play at some point, right? Otherwise, Chiellini's going to get hurt again. This other one gets suspended, and then Benatti comes in, he hasn't played. So, yeah, so so that was the real reason. Plus, I didn't want to get booed. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's like, why create a problem when there isn't one there? You know? <laughs> well, they, they certainly didn't have many problems. That penalty aside, they were completely in control, and a, and a 2-0 win, which saw them back in business. I like you said, that was, uh, they had immediately kind of bounced back from that And it was training. a useful defeat. Yes. If Man United was a useful defeat, this was a very useful victory to see them straight back into yeah, the groove. Well, and I think, look, there's only so many games this season where you know you can realistically expect that there's a chance of Juve to drop points. And it's Genoa. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, look, this was one of them. Yes, you can have all of these these wacky games and did the, what three games in a row where they played badly and mm. only against Genoa did they drop points. But I mean, in a way. Pride, crowd, Bonucci, all these factors, Iguain, the rage against the machine, all this stuff, this was one of those games, mm. and it didn't happen. And you're only going to get so many other shots this season for Juve to stumble, because I'm not going to say they'll definitely beat Frosinone away, for example, but odds are this is not a situation where you realistically expect them to, to drop points. And with the atmosphere, can you tell us about the atmosphere of the game? Well, there's, what, 74,000 there. The uh, choreographia that was put out by the um, the Milan Ultras, which was there to celebrate 50 years of the, the Coup de Vassoud, um was pretty damn spectacular. Mm. Um, so you had the devil in the middle, and then who were the figures on either side? Well, you had two Ultras, right. essentially, and all the tattoos. chested and tattooed. Most of the, the, the tattoos were the founding dates of the various Ultra groups right. in, the, in the Coup de Vassoud. Think about it, 50 years... There are people who, who first identified as ultras who today are old guys sitting in bars, you know, playing cards. I know people often ask us about the discussion about the ultras and the phenomenon and blah, blah, blah. And obviously that's one for, for another time perhaps. But I think that to me that says how intrinsically a part of the Italian game the ultras are. Mm. And for all the attempts by some people to go and, you know, wipe that and, you know, sanitize and all this other stuff, the game, you know, it is a part of what it is today mm. as a result. Sometimes it's a positive part, sometimes a very negative part. But the thing is that 
all the attempts to kind of eradicate it or at least take its hands off off any kind of form of control of the, of the tiller of Italian football, as it were, have proved nobody's really had any success doing it. And part of the reason for that is the fact that the clubs are desperately afraid of upsetting uh, the ultras. It's quite interesting that there's a debate going on in, in Italy that much is, I think, started by Carlo Ancelotti about um, kind of the abuse and the insults and the kind of culture within the, not only within the curva, but within the ground itself. And Mourinho wasn't the first one to react to Juventus fans basically raining insults down on him because Carlo had done it earlier in the season. Mm. Carlo, who's even when he was Juve manager, used to get roundly insulted by yeah, Juve fans. Exactly. And his response was, Yeah, I just uh, I go home and I look in my trophy cabinet and I <laughs> see that Champions League I won in 2003. Against Juve. But, you know, he, he was saying, and they were having this big debate at the, um, the Coach of the Year Awards yes, on Monday that, you know, if they can stop a game for rain, they can stop a game for, you know, when I'm getting called a pig <laughs> and stuff like that. We've talked about the issues with with ultras recently, with the the the, the story building at Juventus regarding, mm-hmm. which is interesting because one of the reasons it's been hard, I guess, to tackle some of the abuses of power that the the ultras have is that the stadiums. It's very hard to police the stadiums effectively because, I mean, this is something that's said about Stadio Olimpico because of the the kind of unique way that points of access are, are distributed that they become almost like no man's lands for the purposes of the police force. But even in the Juventus Arena or Allianz Arena, it, it seems like that's ultra territory. And on one hand, you know, we well, say... Their area of the pitches. Hmm? Their area of the stand yeah. is. Yeah. And that's not... And that's that's one of the, the, the bad things that, you know, there have been plenty of cases there where they go and they bully other fans. Mm. And it's not just at Juve. It happens elsewhere. Yeah. You know, other fans of their own team, they say, no, this is our place. You can't sit there or... You know, no, we're going to go and stand here, and no, you, you know. can't bring any girls in. Yeah, <laughs> let's not let's not go through that whole thing again. Okay, but you know, it, it is a difficult not... question because we say about what a great atmosphere, and everybody says, "Oh, you have to see the Genoa derby. Get there early. Mm. The choreography is going to be amazing. This looked fantastic it when was. a derby happens at San Siro. Equally in Rome, it's brilliant." So they are part of what makes Italian football, gives it such an incredible flavour. Even when results aren't going well, even when the teams aren't the strongest, just the atmosphere you can get there is extraordinary. But at the same time, they are, without question, part of the reason that Italian football, I think, went through such a decline in terms of attendance, in terms mm. of security problems in stadiums, all, all that kind of I thing. I think the, um, you know, you were at Atalanta. Mm. Um, oh. what, what they did about because there's this whole other aspect is obviously how some of these groups get get politicized, right? Mm. And in Bergamo, I think this was until 10, 15 years ago, you had two big ultras groups. One of them was, was Leguista, um, affiliated with the Northern League, which back then was actually That's a party. That's party gap, isn't it? It was a party that wanted to, to separate and not the right-wing xenophobic mess that it is today. Um, the, but they wanted independence from the North, and the other group was... was avowedly left-wing group and they decided almost over the course of a month of meetings between the two fans they said you know what no more political banners we see anybody with a political t-shirt of any kind we reserve the right to eject them and beat the crap out of them and all we're going to do in here is we'll debate politics outside the stadium but all we're going to do in here is support Atalanta. And so they, they kind of created this new sort of umbrella group called supporters, very imaginatively. 
And they still do all the ultras things. Like, mm. you know, they sing, they have the choreographies, they chase down people from Brescia and beat the stuffing out of them. Um, or one of the things that they do, for which some, some have been criticized, is they have these, um, call them checkpoints, right? If they see kids going to the ground and they're not wearing Atalanta colors and because the accent from Bergamo is so distinctive and they hear the kids or the parents speak, they simply stop the parents and ask them like, why is your kid, it's usually Juve or Milan, right? Obviously, why doesn't your kid support his local team? And again, and people say, well, that's wrong. That's intimidating, blah, blah, blah. But part of me also says, you know what? You're from this place. You should take some level of pride in this place. And you as a parent, unless you've got some family connection or whatever, I think you kind of have, not an obligation, but... What did you do with that kit that we well, sent you as a newborn baby? Well, yeah, because that's the other thing that Atalanta do. Every yeah. kid that's born in the hospitals in, in the province of Bergamo, they get a letter from the club and, and they, get, they get a club shirt. And if they don't wear that shirt, they'll be back in the hospital very, very shortly. <laughs> no, that's not true, only if they're from Brescia. But no, but they, they have these, you okay. know... Gabriel, I really respect that. It's a really original point of view, but I can't agree with it at all, well, that, that there's a, almost a kind of like geographical <laughs> duty to support your club and that they will have a polite word with you if you're not wearing the right colours. No, these are also the people who drove that tank over a car. Do you remember? It was a Brescia and Roma car, no? Was, okay. Did it have the wrong number plate? No, 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 no. They, they, they tagged it with Brescia and they tagged okay. it with Let's, let's ah, be clear on that's this. That's right. Let's yeah. be very clear on this, okay? Yeah. So every summer, yeah. right, Festa Atalanta, Atalanta fans have the festival of the the Feast of the Goddess, because La Dea is Atalanta, the goddess, right? And where it's actually, they raise money for charity and they have a sort of a big barbecue and the players come and, and stuff like that. And as part of the entertainment, one guy who's, he's actually, I think he's like a wine merchant or something, he collects World War II artifacts, okay? Because that's just how he rolls. And he owns a tank. Obviously, it's not a real... I mean, it is a real tank, but there's you no know, guns. It's like in a it. Sherman tank, no? Yeah. yeah. And as part of it, they decided, like, hey, look, you know, wouldn't it be funny if we use a tank to go and flatten these junk cars? I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's life was put in danger. Right. It's his tank. It's on a field. He had permission. Why people make such a big deal out of it, I don't know. There's light and shade, you know, in everyone. And it's fair to say that quite often, you know, whilst the clubs go on their merry way and, mm -hmm. and, and, and don't necessarily plough a huge amount into the community, the ultra groups, I'm thinking, for example, at Perugia, have often been at the forefront of really positive social initiatives. They did a lot of things against discrimination, a lot of things for refugees amid the crisis there. So, you know. I remember Napoli ultras when, when they came to Marassi this season, probably for the game against Samp, they brought sort of aid packages for those displaced in the bridge disaster there. So mm. again, some social conscience. Well, as you say, Gab, ultras is, is, is a vast topic and one that we should address in all its complexities very, very soon. After this, though, we'll just touch on one or two of the other, other news stories coming out of last weekend's action. <laughs> Quick mention for Frosinone's 1-1 draw with... Fiorentina on Friday because the Frosinone goal scored by Andrea Pinamonti. Is that exciting for you, Gabriele? It's exciting because he's one of those guys who's in into youth products. Right. He also wears the number 89 jersey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What minute did he score in? The 89th minute, James. Absolutely. And he also scored against Spal. Ready in your minds for this nugget. <laughs> Guess which minute that goal was. 
The 89th minute, the 89th James. 89th minute. I yeah. mean, come on, that's bizarre. He wears 89. He scores only in the 89th yeah. minute. I think he's on a weird kind of incentive-based contract where he is paid literally only per goal. I think that's the only thing that Frosinone pick up because right. I think he's still on Inter's books. Yeah. And each week they think, oh, we've saved ourselves a bundle of money. And then in the 89th minute, bang. Yeah, he's uh, he's an exciting player. I would say. I remember um, Julien Laurence when back when he did the Europa League for BT, getting very excited when Stefano Pioli gave him his debut. Oh, in, nice. in, in I think, yeah, in that competition. Let's get on to the other big story from this week. Mixed week for poor old Chievo. They lost their manager, but also there was bad news. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the manager, of course, being uh, Giampiero Ventura, who Ace Ventura, who. Walked out after, or they took a bit of time to go. He was going to walk out, and then there was a bit of humming and hiring. But anyway, the news is he's gone. Mm. This following a 2-2 draw at home to Bologna, which saw them finally reach the magic zero points mark. So a bit of a way to go. They're still bottom of the table, but he, he's left after just four games in charge, the former Italy manager, almost exactly a year to the day after the San Sero defeat. Yeah, that, which, was, uh, that was yesterday. That was Tuesday, no? Yeah. November 13th. Indeed, it um, was. Yeah, at least he actually resigned this time. Yeah, at least yeah. he at least he's learned how to resign. Well, the irony classy being of him that back then he he waited to be fired. Mm, he wanted his money. Yeah, this time there were some suggestions that he he, he was wavering about resigning, but uh, he dismissed those and said, "No, no, I've even given up uh, my two years of contract." And uh, we had dif- a difference of opinion about the road we should be travelling. Kiev players, Sergio Pellissier, the m- most notably among them. Uh, not at all impressed. In 22 years as a professional, I thought I'd seen everything, but I must admit, there's always something new. This is crazy. Ventura, from the moment he arrived, already wanted out. That was uh, Pellissier, Kievo legend, one of the few members of the Kievo organization who you can countenance, I think. Is that right, Geb? Yes. I mean, I think relative to others, you can uh, you can stomach him a little bit more. But right. I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's God punishing Campidelli further. I, I I hope it is. I have this sort of very biblical mm. viewpoint, but it also kind of. How under- does Mimo Di Carlo? Is he kind of plague of locusts esque? Uh, given his recent. He's the third horseman of the apocalypse. <laughs> <yeah>? Mimo Di Carlo, <laughs> Mimo Di Carlo, who is is now taking over Kievo in Ventura's stead in his third stint as Flying Donkey's boss. Uh, he's not particularly. I I liked him as a. As a young player at Roma, he once scored an outrageous goal. Did he? Yeah. I mean, this is like way back in like the 80s. But but no, I think once he sold his soul to, 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 to Campidelli for three slices of, of Pandoro, which is all it takes, um, you know, you're you're welcome to him. But the Ventura thing, it, it was just, it's just so funny. It's just so funny that Campidelli would be so stupid as to turn to somebody who like, I'm not saying Ventura is the, the, the origin of all evil and he obviously did well at Torino, whatever. But it's very obvious that right now the guy is completely damaged goods, you know, up here. You know, that, that he's in no fit state of mind to go and, and work in football. <laughs> for Confidelli to go and appoint him, you know, hey, enjoy it, man. Mm. Well, we'll see how this works. By the way, he says he mm. gave up his last two years of contract. Do you believe him? Well, I think he's done this. He took the job just so he could show that he knows how to resign oh. and he knows how to leave money <laughs> on the table. I think that's the the entire point of this, which would fit with Pellissier's kind of thing that he, as soon as he joined, he wanted to leave. So, and and, and by the way, I'm, I'm Ventura. Like I know, like it's shooting fish in a bucket, right? So like it's it's so easy to go and blame him for all the ills and whatever. And yeah, I think if somebody 
other than, than Ventura, like that, that paperclip on your desk, James, had been in charge of Italy, mm -hmm. Italy would have gone to the World Cup. But equally, you know, it is more of a collective failure that goes way beyond Ventura. So it's, it's funny to scapegoat him because of the way he behaved, but there's a lot of other things wrong, and that's why Italy didn't go to the World Cup before, you know, we go and pat ourselves on the back a little too much. Mm. Starting with the dwarf at the FA, going on with some of the, the awful players. So the let's just bear this in mind. Losing the Italy job and going out in the way that he did, but you look at Prandelli as well, that messes with your head. It makes you take sort of rash decisions. You take jobs you shouldn't take, and your career kind of unravels from the, from there. I think it's a real shame in Prandelli's case, less, less so than Ventura. Well, Prandelli's uh, a good person at the very least. Exactly. No, I mean, that went without saying yet. And he also like, achieved some good results with Italy. He did. But I think he rushed into the next job that he took and has never really been able to recover from that. And I think, you know, if you, he's just taken bad job after bad job. Galatasaray, Valencia. And he's a good manager who should still be working in football. Mm. And, and it just goes to show how much that kind of experience of, you know, feeling that you've disappointed with the national team ultimately can be your undoing. Very interesting. Thank you, James. Nice. <laughs> Italy will be in action at the end of this week when they're at home to Portugal at San Siro. Mm -hmm. Before we touch on that, we should also mention there's been other managerial changes. Julio Velasquez is out at Udinese. They've brought in Davide Nicola as his replacement, the man who had to bicycle the length of Italy after his lost stint as a City A manager. He didn't have to, James. He wanted to. Wow. Whatever you think of the Pozzo family, they're not afraid to think outside the box, right? So they appoint this guy from Spain who nobody's ever heard of, who really didn't achieve great things mm. in Spain. People in Spain were befuddled and were like, wait, you got him? Um, you know, it, it would be like, I don't know, Bologna appointing Gary Rowett or somebody, you know? And then it doesn't work out, and they cut him loose. And from yeah. their perspective, they didn't pay him very much, not cost him very much. He can say he had the experience in CDI, he expanded his skill set, he'll go back and try to rework on his career somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think a lot of times this, this idea that a manager doesn't necessarily have to be some sort of long-term five-year plan, I Certainly, that's, that's a belief that the Pozzos share. Uh, Udinese uh, left by Velasquez after their defeat by uh, Empoli this weekend in the bottom three. Nicola famously, after he managed to save Crotone, yeah. the Pythagoreans. Mm -hmm. Or uh, the Sharks as well. Or the Sharks. Yeah. Um, made good on his promise, his vow to bicycle the length of Italy. It was, what, 1,300 kilometres as a way of saying thanks for, you know, being able to... Back home to Turin, yeah. Back home to Turin. Mm. He went to all the different towns that he'd managed in along the way. His own personal Giro d'Italia, yeah. Yeah, now he'd have to do an extra dog leg to get all the way across to Udine. <laughs> if he was. Anyway, so well, that's going to be interesting to see how, you know, how, how he, he, he does. Of course, Empoli, the team who provoked that change with the win over... Uh, Udinese had already made a change themselves the previous week when they, they got rid of Aurelio Andrea Zoli, who's literally just been named manager of the year for, for, for last season's workout in Serie B and, and replaced him with uh, our old friend Beppe Aquino, who's back in again. Yeah, which is so I will always have a weak spot for Andrea Zoli if you want to see this. Roma used to have a player named Rodrigo Taddei, and he scored this goal, must have been maybe what, 10, 12 years ago? It's yeah. like one of those YouTube favorites. He does this move to get open to shoot, which is known as the Aurelio, after Aurelio Andrazzoli, which I don't even know how you begin to, to describe it, so I won't. Just find it on, on YouTube. It's weird. With all the great players you've seen in Italy, 
the only other guy who I've seen do stuff like that is is Ilicic. Mm. You've raised your hand. You've got another guy who's done stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to mention Quaresma with well, the Trivella. Otrivela. Yeah. Yeah, no, but Otrivela is just a dude like... The problem with Otrivela is, as I see it, right. as much as I love Quaresma, is, okay, so you hit the ball with the outside of your foot. Well, with specifically with three toes of the outside of your... Okay, so you, And those toes are webbed. Right. Yeah. If you, by the way, if you look, <laughs> if you look up Rodrigo Tadei Aurelio Man on YouTube, you'll find it pretty quickly. His uh, his yeah, speciality. It's, it's it's worth a few minutes. But I love know. that he named this skill after mm. Andrea Zoli. I mean, did Andrea Zoli show him how to do this? I mean, I, I that's I'd love to imagine that. You know, this kind of veteran <laughs> guy is like doing something that would probably lead him to have a hip replacement. I don't know. Essentially, it's, is it an elastico? Is it the same as an elastico? Aurelio? It's an elaboration. It's an elaboration mm. of it. Anyway, well, best of luck to Aurelio in sparring further players at wherever it is he ends up next. Empoli, who are, in fact, level on points with Udinese. Just goal difference outside the bottom three. All right, San Siro this Saturday, James. Yes, Italy are playing Portugal. They are. Now, the situation in the group is interesting. Last time we, we were previewing an Italy game, it looked like they were heading for relegation to League B. But now they're second in the group, only two points behind Portugal, who admittedly have a game in hand. And this following Poland's uh, defeat to the Italians in, in Poland, a great performance and a new dawn, I think, for the Azuri under Mancini that, that last game represented. I, they played really well for two games. He didn't go and make 15 changes out of 11. So that was good. For Italy to actually win the group, they need to not just beat Portugal, they have to also hope that and do them a favor. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, I don't really see that happening, but stranger things have happened. The important thing is that Italy won't get relegated at this stage. And um, that there's something of a project now. Whereas and there's before, a project, yeah. yeah. Um, Where anyone who's anyone, <laughs> never heard of, can get picked for Italy. I, I think also all the um, valuable consulting experience Mancini got with Al Jazeera and the Arab Emirates, <laughs> no doubt uh, widened his, uh, his worldview. Well... It's not long since Italy were not just top of the group, but cap at Monday. And, and next week, I think, on Golad. So we're going to salute one of the heroes of that fabulous time. man who made it to the team of the World Cup. Luca Toni. Numero uno. Numero uno. But for now... Did he really make it to the... Yeah, yeah. He was in the All-Star team for that World Cup, which is kind of surprising because I don't remember him being the, you know, the... Well, he scored twice in the most difficult and... game. Was the Ukraine game the most difficult? He also scored against France, let's be fair, in the final. Wasn't the Ukraine game? That was the one where Barzagli had to play, right? Yeah, yeah. And this was young Barzagli, by the Mm. way. Anyway, well, we can talk about all that and more. His beginnings with Baggio, his extraordinary finish at Verona, all the bits in between. Mm -hmm. We can do all that next week on Galazzo. So make a date, listener. The goal celebration. The classic, iconic goal celebration. Make sure you join us then next week, listener, when we discuss the man the Gazetta describes as the last great Italian centre-forward. For now, it's many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti. Thank you. And James Horncastle. You off to Italy for the the Italy game? Uh, Maybe. Well, whatever it is you choose to do, listener, have a great one. For now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>